For those of you who are still awake after lunch, um, <laughs> it's a very good lunch. Um, you will notice that our, our uh, sermon text this morning reiterates what Mark just read. Um, and for those of you who are saying, no, no, you're reading the same thing, it's no. You know, when we look at all the different Gospels, there are different accounts of the same story of the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And so please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and uh, we will be starting in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, you, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for this morning. Lord, we are thankful for the salvation of all you gave in Jesus Christ as a light to the world in darkness. Lord, we pray that you would illumine us from your word this afternoon, that with the light of Christ and by the merits of his passion, we may be led to eternal life through the same Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This afternoon, our scripture continues um, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. But before we get there today, I want to explain how and why we are here in this text. As a youth and college and children's pastor of the last 15 years, I found myself constantly bombarded with pleas from, from parents, right? From confused, from tired, and, and sometimes frustrated parents, right? You, you have got to fix my kid, right? My, my, my daughter's dating this guy, and, and he's absolutely up to no good. Will you please talk to her for me? Right? Or a pastor, my, my son is constantly lying to me about where he is and what he's doing with his friends on the weekend. Right? Will, will you please talk to him for me? Right? Every, every single time I'd chuckle a little bit, and then I'd reassure them, yes, of course, of course, I'll, I'll talk with them. But first, I'd like to talk with you. Most often, saying those words would, would catch them off guard. Right? They had worked up this courage to approach me for help. And they'd often be the one, they'd, they'd expect me to be the one to correct their kids' behavior, right? But in our, in our conversations, I would politely remind them that I am not in the behavior modification business. It was not my job to parent their children. But as their minister, uh, of course, I was honored to walk with them through these seasons with families, more often than not, these conversations were not exceptionally difficult. They were kind of things that, that all of us go through uh, when, it, when it comes to rearing children. But every once in a while, you get a real zinger, right? Working with real people, sometimes you run into real problems, problems of the heart, 
Maybe they're behavioral issues or substance abuse or, or neglect. Right? People are mean. Real people are hurting. And in, in our response to human brokenness, real human brokenness, no matter how trivial or serious, is actually quite simple. There is rest and there is hope found in Christ's completed work on the cross. And that is good news, my friends. It's good news because the gospel has the power to bring forth true change, real change. Right? And today we're going to look at uh, what the gospel compels us to do in Luke chapter 6. Before we get into our verses starting in 37, uh, much like last time I preached, I want to take one step backward and look at the verse right before, right? This, this passage must be observed in light of Christ's command that he gives us in verse 36, which says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Right? This simple message, and as we find it, it can actually be pretty difficult to unwrap. Right? What this entails, being merciful, is not exactly natural for mankind. We find our, our passage in Luke echoing Christ's famous words in, in Matthew 5 that uh, Pastor Wheat read right before me. Right? And this is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Luke's version is, uh, in, in Luke's words, it's, it's, much, more, it's much more brief. Right? And, and probably contains a message that Jesus often taught to large crowds and, and in intimate gatherings as he traveled and taught his disciples. Luke, and probably Jesus as well, was concerned with the application of these truths by believers. Right? How will a follower of Christ act? Right? That is, in light of the gospel, what are we then compelled to do? That is what our passage seeks to communicate today. Right? It can be read as a collection of proverbs or wise words of wisdom to his disciples and those in attendance. These directives for Christian living are not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of our families at home, for our workplaces, and for our communities, right? for the benefit of the church. Despite its potential impact for changing lives, right, today's teaching focuses on us. The great, uh, sorry, the grandson of Billy Graham reminds us that gospel obligations uh, that we will touch on today must be based on gospel declarations. I'm going to say that one more time. Gospel obligations must be based on gospel declarations. Right? In, in seminary, we, love, we have our own language. It's called seminary speech. And we love talking about hoity-toity things in hoity-toity ways. Um, right? And we love talking about the importance of indicatives preceding imperatives. Right? You may have heard this before. But it's just a really silly way of saying that we cannot be successful in showing mercy to those around us without first knowing who was merciful to us. Right? Before God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, uh, written on stone, he first freed his people from bondage under Pharaoh. Right? The Israelites were compelled to obey God's word and God's commands because they had received his wonderful provisions. Today's gospel obligations, those things that we are called to do, must be based on gospel declarations, the wonderful things that God has done for us. God is good, he is holy, and he is just, and therefore, let us reflect that love to those around us. This imitation is a vital part of life. 
I've heard it said and, and proven that, you know, even the way a boy walks is a learned walk, right? Largely from the influence of his dad. The way he sits in a specific chair, right? The way he crosses his legs, the way he does certain things. For me, it was my signature. You know, I saw my dad sign these things and I was like, man, that looks really cool. My signature is this pin scratch. It looks just like his, right? The way boys do these things will be just like their fathers, right? Provided that their fathers are there to model it all the time. Not by saying, you know, son, this is how you walk and this is how you sit, but, but by imitating. We learn by imitating. And this is a vital part of life. These characteristics are part of becoming like our father. We are to imitate him. Leviticus, Leviticus 11, God tells us, for I, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy as I am holy. Right? Be holy as I am holy. As I have loved you, so you must also love those around you. Imitate me, he says. So what, what attributes should we be imitating, right? Today, I'm going to address uh, three divine attributes. Because our Father is merciful, the gospel compels us to be merciful. Because our Father is watchful, the gospel compels us to be watchful. And finally, because our Father is noble, the gospel compares us to be noble. Merciful, watchful, and noble. If Christ calls us to imitate our Father and be merciful, then how are we going to accomplish this? Jesus does not leave us with this giant cliffhanger. He, he explains it very well in verse 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. We are given four specific commands in these two verses, right? We have two prohibitions. We have two things that, that we should not do, right? Do not judge and do not condemn. And then we have two commands, right? Two positives, things that we should be doing. We are told to forgive and give. Simple commands. This is easy to do, right? It's so easy to do. I, I think we're done. We just, we just go home. Just do these things, right? No. What? is God, what is Christ getting at in these verses? What does do not judge mean? I think you could probably ask a lot of people and get a lot of different responses, and that's Jesus's first command, do not judge, right? Since it's so simple and such a clear command, uh, I think it's important that we know exactly what Christ is saying when he says do not judge. Let's start by explaining what Jesus is not saying, right? We'll move on to what he is saying. What it does not mean is that Jesus is, is, is prohibiting the exercise of justice in the court of law, right? The Bible, in its completion, upholds the law. As Christians, we are to obey the rule of law, which is appointed for those uh, who do wrong, and it's for the well-being of those who do right, right? Let's be clear that Jesus here is not prohibiting the institution of justice, Instead, he's addressing the matter of individual relationships. And this is where our confusion often comes in. It has never been more clear, I think, than in our society today, right? Who has not a lot of regard for justice. And our appointed government systems are, are doing what? They're falling apart. 
People are taking this verse, you know, judge not lest you be judged, and they're relativizing everything. Right? Who's to say that riots that took place, you know, in our, in our nation's large cities uh, during the pandemic were bad, right? Destruction and theft of other people's property. I mean, it's okay, right? As long as it's done uh, with, with, with good purposes, right? I mean, there's, there's good meanings behind this, right? right? Who's to say that these individuals' motives were right or wrong? Right? That's what our society is telling us. It's, it's not up to, to us, right? Our system's crumbling, and, and there's not a lot. That's not something that we should be putting our hope in. The upholding of the institution of, of the law, as we see later in Luke's gospel, is vital. And what we need to realize is this. That is not what Jesus is saying. The Bible is quite clear that we are not to take the law into our own hands. Jesus is not telling us that we are to abandon our critical thinking or question our ability to discern what is right or what is wrong or what is good or what is evil. He has given us minds and a moral code, right? Because later in this passage, Jesus will require us to use these faculties. So back to what Jesus is saying. In studying this passage this week, um, I found that it is not the use of discernment and discrimination that's forbidden, but the attitude of censoriousness. Censoriousness is this, is this big word of the day, according to Alastair Begg. And censorious implies an ill-natured or perverse picking of flaws or censoring, right? Got that? Let me unpack that just a little bit more, right? Jesus is forbidding, he's forbidding the act of nitpicking. A tendency to judge by unreasonable, strict standards. Nitpicking, right? Have you, have you ever thought about that word? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a weird word, and I, I just got focused on that this last week, and so I had to find out where on earth does this word come from, all right? Nitpicking is a, for, is a term that was first used in 1956 that describes the act of giving too much attention to an unimportant detail. The terminology originated from the common act of removing nits. What's a nick? What's a nit? Nits are eggs of lice. A nitpicker is someone who sits in a chair with their child in front of them, slowly and methodically picking out lice one by one from a child's head. That's gross. <laughs> who would do that? Right? Who would do that? But before you get too excited that Jesus is forbidding nitpicking, take one second to think about that. Nitpicking, picking apart small acts, mistakes, and blunders. Maybe it's not so small. Maybe it's something huge, right? Regardless, nitpicking is rushing to a judgment and then criticizing. The act of censoriousness, which Jesus is forbidding, is not the act of picking lice, right? Jesus is talking about me. He's talking about you. Picking apart the words and the actions of those around us. All too often, we are quick to judge. We are judge, jury, and executioner, right? Let's take a look back at the text. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Judging leads to bitterness. And bitterness leads to pronouncing guilt in others. Why are we commanded not to nitpick? Verse 36, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Okay, so, so how do we do that? Jesus continues on in verse 37. He says, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. 
That gets real, really fast. Jesus, you know, he leads us in the Lord's Prayer. What does he say? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We say that Sunday after Sunday. Do we remember that Sunday after Sunday? The word forgiveness is, is one that means, right, to release or to pardon. Right? To forgive is to release something. It's not, it's not an easy concept. And we're, we're people who like to hold on to our offenses. Right? I mean, that's, that's a big problem in our society today. We like to proclaim these microaggressions. Right? We, we, call, we call them this, these little things. And, and man, it just, that, oof, we hold on to those things. We let them rule our lives and rule our attitudes. As many of you know, my, Abby is a counselor. She specializes in working with young adults, and many of whom are in relationships. Forgiveness is a really tricky concept in relationships. And it might be a little bit easier for us to understand, actually, right? But for many people, forgiveness is a completely foreign concept, right? My wife doesn't always work with Christian couples, that, and that's a struggle. How do you teach someone forgiveness without first teaching them about Christ, and, right? And what Christ has forgiven us, how Christ has forgiven us. If one of you were, were to come up here right now, kick me in the shins for talking about picking nits in the sermon, right? right? I would say, ouch, that hurts, right? That's, that's not comfortable. That's not a good thing, right? Why on earth should I forgive and offer you mercy? Because the Bible's clear. That's why. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Imitate his reaction. Release. The world says kick back, but the word says release. The gospel compels us to be merciful. How merciful? Verse 38 gets right into that. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. For the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. How much mercy are we supposed to give to those around us? Jesus is calling us to a sympathy and a compassion that's extravagant. Give extravagantly, overflowing with mercy. And when I think of this word extravagant, this, this, this picture comes in my mind. I mean, have, have you guys ever made uh, homemade chocolate chip cookies with your kids or maybe with your grandkids, right? And if you haven't, I strongly recommend you go buy a bag of uh, Toll House chocolate chips and follow the instructions on the back of the bag. Um, but don't be like Matt Morkin who puts extra gluten in it because um, then I can't eat it. <laughs> Um, this probably tastes really good. Okay, but anyways, we're, we're making cookies, right? We're mixing cookies, we're mixing the dough, and the absolute best part of that experience is the chocolate chips, right? It's pouring in the chocolate chips to the batter, and, and, and you open that bag, and it's, man, these things are always hard to open, no matter how big you are, and, and you open it, and it blows up everywhere, and there's chocolate chips everywhere. Um, maybe you're that guy who cuts the bag with scissors, we can't be friends. Um, <laughs> your, kid is, right, your kid is sitting there holding the measuring cup, right? And you begin to pour, right? These chocolate chips have flown everywhere. You begin to pour. But do you stop when you get to the top of that measuring cup? No, because what is your kid saying? More, more. Dad, put more in the cup, right? You're pouring in these chocolate chips, right? And you cram a whole nother cup of chocolate chips on top of the cup of chocolate chips and put those in the cookies, and they're amazing. It's overflowing. It's a mountain of chocolate chips. It's glorious. That 
is extravagance. Pressed down, shaken together, pouring over. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Imitate him. The gospel compels us to be merciful, and we must be generous, extravagant with our mercy. Second, the gospel compels us to be watchful. Let's look at verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? Good news. There is no hidden meaning in this verse. It's pretty, pretty obvious, right? We're entering into a series now of five parables that Jesus is going to use to instruct his listeners on how to interact with those around him, right? And it's important to note that Christ's commands are given to his followers, not just for our benefit, right? But for the benefit of building up his church communally. While many of his teachings are beneficial to us as individuals, they are necessary for Christian fellowship. They are necessary for us together as Christ builds up his church here at Good Shepherd. This parable in particular allows us to see a new side of Jesus' humanity, right? The folly and the futility, the silliness and futility in a blind man leading a blind man leads to what? A disastrous outcome. They will inevitably, of course they will inevitably fall into a pit, right? This humor has disaster written all over it. We're reminded that there is a serious outcome if we refuse to heed Christ's warning. We're given two simple questions. The first answer is obviously no, right? And the second is yes. Can a blind man lead a blind man? No. Will not they both fall into a pit? Yes. Right? Imagine driving down Highway 59. You're going into work on Monday morning. You're hitting high... 59 North, and you see a blind man trying to cross uh, all four lanes of northbound traffic, right? He's, he's waving his cane back and forth, and he's trying to feel his way across the highway. So you slow down to assess the situation, and then you, you see this other guy coming out of nowhere, and you're like, oh my goodness, thank goodness, I don't have to stop. There's another guy coming over, and, and so you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden you realize, that guy's blind too. There's two blind guys walking across the highway. This scenario has disaster written all over it. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus' listeners were, were well aware of the rugged terrain, right? The New Testament warns of many pits. Apparently, the roads in Palestine were just like the roads here in Houston, right? Either you fall into a hole that is dug by authorities on official business, or you'll eventually fall into a, a hole ignored by the authorities. But either way, you cannot go 50 feet without falling into the pit, right? So, so by now, you're probably asking, how on earth does this tragic comedy fit into the greater text? It's a really good question. Let me see if I can answer that. Verse 37 warns us not to judge or to condemn others. As followers of Christ, we should forego the nitpicking. Those who neglect this command are engaging in such vain activities, and, and they have their eyes wide open. They are looking all around them. They're waiting for people to mess up. Right? They're, they're waiting for people to misstep right there. Right? Jesus is telling us that it is they whose eyes are wide open, waiting for others to make a mistake. It is they who are actually quite blind to God's commands. So who could this be? You turn back in, uh, in Luke to chapter 6, verse 7. 
And the scribes and Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. The Pharisees were looking and watching Jesus, waiting for their chance to nitpick his every move. Matthew 15 is even more incriminating. Jesus explicitly calls the Pharisees blind guides. Why? Because it's disastrous. Jesus continues in Matthew, if, if the blind both lead the blind, will not they fall into a pit? Regardless of who's, who Jesus is talking about in our uh, passage this morning, Pharisees are not, right? His message is very loud and very clear that people leading and teaching falsely is not docile. It's in fact quite dangerous. If you find yourself in a church where the Bible is not being taught, but the preacher, he's a really nice guy with a good smile, get out, right? You're sure to fall in a pit. Jesus is warning his followers to be watchful like him. Let's look at verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher. The appropriate goal here is to be like your teacher. And for goodness sakes, don't follow a blind one. This concept is echoed throughout the Gospels. Matthew 10, John 13, John 15. A disciple is not above his teacher, but, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. A son will always be like his father, and a disciple will always follow his teacher. I'm often asked that why it, it's kind of weird, you know, at almost 40, why on earth have I decided to take a little break from work and to become a full-time student? Right? Why would I want to devote my life to ministering the gospel? The answer for that for me is simple. The answer for me is Walter William West III. <laughs> he was my high school young life leader right here in the suburbs of southwest Houston. Um, Walt made an effort to get to know me. Walt, Walt made an effort, and, and he taught me that the gospel wasn't just for kids like me who grew up in, in, in the safe church, right? in this Christian bubble, the gospel is a gift that we've been given to share. I enjoy sharing the good news of Christ because Walt took the time to get to know me and share it with me. Church, take note of who you are learning from. Is it mainstream media, maybe Fox News, or that funny YouTube guy who fixes stuff and cracks inappropriate jokes, right? Are you surrounding yourself with biblical men and women who push you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better brother. Friends, keep your eyes open and be watchful. Be careful of who you follow, for the gospel compels us to be watchful. Finally, we will arrive at our third point this afternoon. We have learned that the gospel compels us to be merciful, and the gospel compels us to be watchful. And finally, we will discover in verses 41 and 42 that the gospel compels us to be noble. Jesus wants us to be honorable, to be decent, to be full of virtue. A follower of Jesus is noble. Why? Because he's noble. This challenge will, will be a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because it, it focuses back on us. It will force us to be introspective, right? To take a look at ourselves. If a follower of Jesus must be watchful, careful of who we follow, then it makes completely sense uh, it makes complete sense that we need to take this observation one step further. We need to be aware of what we look like. Have you ever been to a party and, and noticed that one person with a tag hanging out of the back of their brand new shirt, right? Or, or perhaps, you know, there's that guy who just nibbled on the fresh stalk of broccoli and he's got that little green hanger in between his teeth, right? 
Do you say something? Do you not say anything, right? You, you certainly don't want them wandering around meeting others looking like that because that would just be awkward and comfortable for everybody. But we need to be aware of those who we follow. And we need to be aware of ourselves as well. Verse 41 reads this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? <laughs> here we go again, right? Jesus is, is dropping the mic, and he's, he's got another little tidbit of humor here, right? Verse 40, how can you say to a brother, brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log in your own? Right, a, a speck, and this is something, something tiny, right? The Greek word uh, here means twig, right? Or a piece of straw. Right, this is the same word in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, when Noah sends out the dove in the ark and, and the dove comes back with a carfos. It comes back with this twig in its mouth, right? This little speck, this little twig can give us hope, right? It is seemingly insignificant, but it can be seemingly insignificant when we contrast it with a giant log, right? This log that is in your own eye. Right, this word for log is, is the same uh, that talks about a beam, a structural beam in your house. Right? Here in Texas, we have pretty big homes, right? and that load-bearing beam has to take a lot of weight. Right? Typically, these beams are, are, are super heavy, and it takes multiple people, if not a crane sometimes, to put these beams in place. So Jesus can tell a bit of a joke, I think. Right? Here we see someone walking around with this giant beam sticking out of their forehead. Right? And he wanders up to you and he says, pardon me, sir. Right? I'm not sure if you're aware, but, but there's a speck in your eye. Would you like me to get that for you? Right? And then the guy's just saying, no, 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 step back. Right? I, I don't need your help. You're going to hit me with the beam. Right? This, this, this is silly. Right? So why does Jesus tell us a silly story? Because church, you and I are absurd. I can't speak for you. Maybe I should walk that back, but I... I'm an awful human being. If you knew the thoughts that run through my mind, you wouldn't want me to be your intern. And, but I'm willing to bet that if I knew the thoughts going through your mind, I, I wouldn't want to be your intern either. <laughs> my family and I like to visit the beach once a year. Apparently, we like to live at the beach too. But uh, once a year, uh, the in-laws have a place in Florida right on, right on the beach, and we love to just go and sit. I spend so much time in life just going, going, going. I love to just sit. And we'll spend hours on the beach just sitting there watching those around us, right? Watching the random people walk by. Have you ever done that? People are weird. <laughs> Someone will walk by and, and maybe I'll lean over to Abby and say, mm, you should not be wearing that swimsuit. Or, or, or maybe we were sitting there and then this guy walks across with his giant tattoo and I thought, who thought that was a good idea, right? There, there's this... Inevitably, there's always this one kid on the beach whose mom has a little glue stick sunscreen, right? And she rubs it all over his back, and, and she always misses spots. And by day two, Johnny's running around the beach looking like Tony the Tiger, right? He's got little red and white stripes all over his body. People are mean. Jesus continues on in verse 42. You hypocrites. Okay, let's stop right there. When interviewed, what is the number one reason non-believers don't want to come to church? It's because church is a place full of hypocrites. Jesus is talking about his disciples and, and his followers here, the people who will build up his church when he is gone. You hypocrite, he says. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's. All right, let me paint the rest of this beach picture for you. So I'm sitting there on the beach and in my short, really uncomfortable folding beach chair that sometimes they just fall apart when I sit in them because I'm huge, right? And I certainly exceed the weight limit of this thing. And I'm in a swimsuit and my belly's hanging over and I've been sitting there for four days and I forget to sunscreen several times a day. So I'm as red as a lobster looking absolutely ridiculous. Who's the hypocrite? This guy. I know I'm not the only one here with this problem. Inflating our own ego at the expense of others. The Bible tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. Inflating our egos at the expense of others' feelings. Exalting ourselves by disparaging others. A great preacher once said, there is so much bad in the best of us and so much good in the worst of us that it becomes ill for any of us to find faults with the rest of us. So before we go pointing out the twig in our brother's eye, let us just remove that beam from our foreheads. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a little bit of time. But once we're done moving that beam, I'm willing to bet that we'll be pretty tired and worn out. And at that point, will you even notice the speck in your brother's eye? Perhaps we'll find out that that speck is not even big enough to mention. And if that speck is something that needs to be addressed, so be it. I guarantee you, you will approach that person humbly, broken, and convicted of your own sin. But you will be ready to extend mercy as your Father in heaven has so extended mercy to you. The gospel compels us to be noble. Why? Because our Father in heaven is noble. The gospel compels us to be merciful. We are to be quick to forgive and generous with our gifts. The gospel compels us to be watchful, to be aware of ourselves and those whom we follow. And finally, the gospel compels us to be noble. We should be honorable and decent, not afraid to reflect on ourselves before we humbly help those around us. Let us be a church that is known to this community as merciful, watchful, and noble. And let us be a church that points one another to the most merciful, the most watchful, and the most noble of all mankind. For there is none that is righteous, no, not one. You and I will mess up. We will miss that mark of perfection that Christ sets before us. But we have a hope. It's Jesus Christ who lived that perfect life that we will never be able to attain. He lived it for you and me. The prophet Isaiah, I want to close with this proclaims this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep who have gone astray, and we have turned every single one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon himself the iniquity of us all. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather here together with brothers and sisters who love you, who love praising you and love singing to you. What a glorious 
wonderful family to be a part of. Lord, I thank you for your strength and your mercy and your love that you give to us, imperfect beings. But I pray that you would be with each one of us this week as we go out into our workplaces and into our families, into our homes. Lord, let us be merciful and watchful and noble as you are. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen.